Hey y'all, it's time to take a brew break. I'm Keela from Keela D Sub Creation, sharing my favorite stories 11 points at a time. You can look forward to English major insights, fangirl freakouts, and biblical tidbits as I dive deep into fiction and nonfiction stories in any form. Now grab a brew and join me for 11sies. The wait is over. Here's part two of the 11 surprises in A Tale of Two Cities episode with my sister. Hope you did your assigned reading. Um, okay, so you sort of already alluded to it, but surprise number seven. Oh, yes. The Defarges, bad news. Yeah, so these are some of the... Sorry, I might have ruined that, that next no, surprise. No, um, okay. The whole book is but, sort of kind of building you to this. Right. Early. So at, at the beginning, we're very sympathetic with the Defarges because they're the ones who have taken in Dr. Manette. They've taken yeah. care of him until Lucy comes to get him. They're like, they are super supportive of him, um, but they're revolutionists. Um, and it, for any, you know, at first they're kind of working against the marquee who we saw was really a terrible person. So you really feel yeah. sympathetic towards them and you're like, oh yes, let's go with their cause. Like, yeah. I understand this, let's go. Um, but then they find out that Charles, who's an Evermond, uh, married Lucy. Um, and essentially they say he better not ever come back to France. Um, because if he does, he's in trouble. And so then you kind of see this shift where, before we were sympathetic with them because of the doctor, but now they don't even care. Mm -hmm. um, they want Charles no matter what. It doesn't matter his associations. Um, and so as soon as the Manettes are actually in France, they are working 100% against them. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to kill not only Charles, but they would love to kill Lucy and their daughter as well. Yeah. And probably would even kill the doctor if he stood in their way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. Probably. Um, so, yeah, when you read a commentary or, like, Spark Notes was saying, Madame Defarge is the antagonist of this book. And when you first read it, you're like, what? She's just, like, a wine shop owner wife. Mm -hmm. She helped Dr. Manette. She's just knitting in the corner. Everything's cool. <laughs> and then you yeah. realize, what is she knitting? <laughs> yeah and like it even goes so far at the end like um charles is going to trial that day pretty much everybody knows he's probably going to be convicted and be guillotined um and obviously madame defarge is always there watching the guillotine because they they love this entertainment that they've created mm -hmm. um but uh before going to the trial she wants to go to lucy's house and essentially just like gloat over the fact um right before her husband's gonna be killed yeah um so she's not just like oh yeah i'm fine with this guy dying like she is getting complete utter enjoyment out of these people suffering for sure for sure and what i think is interesting about this is i feel like when we look back on the french revolution we really kind of side with the rebels like the pe peasants who stood up to the aristocracy mm -hmm. like les mis you're like yeah Viva the revolution, you know, <laughs> but in this story, it kind of shows you how that wasn't always a good thing. And if they're just after blood, any blood of anyone who could possibly be related to someone who was cruel at any time, then you're like, but I also think like that is just kind of the, the risk of a revolution in the first place. Like, yes, these people should rise up and they should show like these, they're not being treated fairly. That's fine. 
but it's like morphed and these people have been just like trampled down for so long that it's no longer about what their rights should be or like how to treat people in general they just want to punish people almost and so you know at times revolution is a good thing but there has to be some sort of control in it or else it just gets crazy oh for sure oh for sure and that's like kind of what i was mentioning earlier where uh dickens as the narrator um, is setting these people up they are the antagonists they are the bad people they're going against the manettes and charles these people that we really love but he understands that it's because of the injustice and the years of cruelty against them that made them mm-hmm. right go that far you know yeah so okay y'all it's about to get crazy up in here oh this this one breaks my heart i know so the defarges um are the ones accusing charles they're the ones who get him arrested again they say we are both like um going to denounce you at the trial but we have a third witness i guess Mm -hmm. and they announce at the trial the third witness is dr manette that's literally the end of a chapter and you're like what can you imagine this in serial edition? Oh, like, I would not. That's the end of it. And you're like, are you kidding me? Now I have to wait for the next part to come out. Oh, that'd be horrible. It's the Pam and Jim kiss all over again. It is. It's the exact same. <laughs> so um, apparently when Defarge went roaming around uh, the Bastille, he found a letter written by Dr. Manette when he was there mm-hmm. explaining everything, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I guess, yeah, surprise number eight is just the contents of Manette's letter, which they read in full at the trial, and it's a doozy. There's a lot in there. Yes, and um, so one thing I would like to say, when they announce that uh, the third witness is Dr. Manette, he jumps up and he's mad. He's like, what? That's ridiculous. I wouldn't blah, blah, blah. And of course, the judge tells him to sit down and be quiet, and then they read this letter yeah so he doesn't have any memory of this of writing it he Mm. like we said he was in the bastille for 18 years he was making shoes and it really took a toll on his mental health and so he doesn't he doesn't remember really the events that led Mm. him there and he doesn't remember writing this he has no idea what they're about to uncover and how it could possibly denounce charles Mm-hmm. So he writes it in his 10th year of imprisonment because he knows that his mind is starting to fail. Yeah. Um, and he knows that he's going to go crazy. So he wants a record of what happened. So in secret, using like the ashes from his little chimney and blood, um, he writes this letter. Oof. And it essentially describes the circumstances that happened right before he was arrested. Um do you want me to, do you want to go into the whole story? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's okay. do it. Great. This podcast can be so long. It's oh, great. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> so, um, essentially, uh, Charles's father and his uncle, uh, the Evermonds, were brothers, and they treated the peasants really unfairly. And uh, I guess one thing they would do is just claim women um, and use them. Um, for as long as they would like, they would take them away from their husbands or, you know, just take whoever they like and they, they would use them. And, um, so, um, it was, was it the father or the uncle? I'm having trouble recalling. I don't remember. They I think it was the uncle. The brothers. Yeah. 
sure sure so um and they're twin brothers by the way um, that may or may not matter, but, um, so one of the brothers has taken this peasant girl, um, and killed her father and, um, she, they have her in this house and she's going crazy. Um, and so they go and they essentially get Dr. Manette and they say, we need your help because you're a doctor and they bring Manette to this house. Um, and this girl is there and she's like tied to this bed because she's going crazy and she's just saying my father my husband my brother one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve my father my husband my brother one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve um and essentially they have decimated this entire family um and they've taken her um and they um her brother came to try to uh i guess rescue her um, and they've stabbed him with a sword and he's um, like in the barn dying mm -hmm. um, as they speak. And so the doctor does whatever he can um, for the woman. The boy dies. Um, he essentially just like eases her pain until she dies. Um, and uh, essentially uh, because he knows the names of these brothers and he knows what they have done, um they imprison him because he's got that information yeah y'all remember i told y'all the evermond was like the face of pure evil mm-hmm mm -hmm. so yeah they've like essentially ruined this whole family there's one surviving sister um but everyone else is dead and they don't want anyone to know about it or anything um so they arrest him and put him in prison mm -hmm. and then all those years in prison take a toll on his mind he feels the need to like write down um like his story what got him here um who got him arrested before his mind goes but now mm -hmm. he's sitting here and he's like my daughter married the son slash nephew of those brothers and mm -hmm. i love him he's my son now but now they're using my words against him on trial and mm -hmm. he is sentenced to death basically for the sins of his and family. Charles was a child at the time. So he was like you know, a baby. He, he yeah. Didn't, he didn't have anything to do with this. Um, it wasn't his fault. I think his mother was a really big influence on him and um, wanted him to be a kinder individual, a better person. Um, and so he thankfully took that from her rather than taking some stuff from his father. And so he doesn't really deserve to be put to death for their sins, but that's not how these revolutionaries are, um, seeing it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So he's sentenced to death by guillotine, like the next day, right? It's like real fast. Yeah. Yeah. So that day he is convicted and then he's going to die the very next day. Yeah. So, and this is also crazy because remember the day before he was released. So the day before yeah. the public was really in his favor, like, this is a really good guy. Great. We love him. I know. And then the next day the public is like, oh, he's the worst. He deserves to die. Like, that's just kind of the you know, the nature of this whole thing. Things are changing day by day and they're changing really fast. Yeah, and can you imagine Dr. Minnett like 
thinking this is my fault. It was my words that got him. Mm -hmm. Like my daughter is going to be a widow because of this. I actually think, so at one point after he, uh, Dr. Minnett kind of fell back into shoemaking after finding out Charles' real name, um, they hid it from him. They took away his shoe bench um, because they didn't want him to fall back into that state again. Right. And I don't think it came up again. This has been years now um, since yeah. I got married. They have a daughter. Um, but after this incident, he starts looking for a shoe bench. He's like, where's my shoe he bench? Does. And yeah. so he starts like falling back into that, which is so sad. And it's, and it's really interesting because I think um, when he first finds out Charles's name, he has this regression and he, he makes shoes for nine days and then he snaps out of it. Mm -hmm. um, they get rid of the bench. Um, and that's fine. Um, but then they're worried about it when they come to France and Charles is imprisoned. But the doctor really finds purpose in what he went through. He's yeah. like, this is why I did it. Like, I have a purpose. I'm going to save him um, because they're also sympathetic with me. But then I think when he loses that and he's like, it doesn't matter. Like what you went through doesn't matter. He's still going to suffer. It just breaks him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he's just looking for a shoe bench he's just trying to make shoes yeah oh so sad <sighs> yeah okay so then we go back to the wine shop and we find out surprise number nine madame defarge is the surviving sister of the victims of the evermonds and so this entire time through the book we've been like she cares about the people she cares about um, the greater good of France. And that's why she's participating in this revolution. And we find out that's not true at all. Nope. She is only there for vengeance. She wants to punish this family for what they did to her family. Um, and so I think at that point you realize that, oh, there's no way she's going to see reason in this thing. Like it doesn't, you can't tell her the son didn't have anything to do with this. She doesn't care. She wants to punish the family. Um, and that's also when you find out that not only does she want to kill him, but she wants to kill Lucy and she wants to kill the daughter as well because she wants to wipe the whole family off the face of the earth. Yeah. Yeah. And so she's really entirely fueled by hatred and mm -hmm. her personal vendetta against this family, right. which, as we will see, are not going to be successful motivations. <laughs> right. Um, but I think it's... Um, it's also interesting because you could make an, you could make the argument, like there are many aristocrats, like why do the Defarges care so much about this particular person when he wasn't even, you know, really in power. Um, and it just all clicks and makes sense that this is the reason they care so much about this particular person. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Crazy. Okay. So. For surprise number 10, we need to uh, go back and introduce you to some characters we have left out. <laughs> this is so great. Um, so, Mrs. Pross, I'm assuming you're talking yes. about. Yes, Mrs. Pross. So, um, in the very beginning when we meet Lucy, she has an attendant, like a woman who has really been caring for her mm -hmm. her entire life, and her name is Mrs. Pross. Um, and so she continues to be a caretaker for the family throughout the entire book. And there's like a little funny moment where she's like really upset at the men who are coming to spend time with Lucy. 
because she doesn't want Lucy to get married. Um, because she always thought the only man good enough for Lucy was her brother Solomon. Um, and she just wants Lucy to marry Solomon, even though Solomon stole all of her money and just like took off with it. It's not like back in the past, like mm-hmm. if he were still around, he's the only man who'd be good enough for Lucy. Yeah. Um, simultaneously, uh, at the trial of Char- Charles Darnay at the very beginning, first one, there, the first one in England. Um, there are two witnesses, um, against him. Uh, one is John Barsad and one is Roger Cly. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are the ones who are accusing Charles of being a spy. And we kind of find out through the story that Charles's uncle is responsible for that whole thing. Like he intentionally made Charles look suspicious, made him look like a spy to hopefully get him imprisoned in England. So he wouldn't have to worry about him anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so it turns out that John Barsad and Roger Cly are spies. Um, and they're kind of going back and forth between France and England. Um, but John Barsad goes to uh, France and he's actually a spy. He's spying on the wine shop. Um, so Madame Defarge puts him on the list of people to kill eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, but then he also becomes a turnkey at the prison. Um, so he's a spy. He works in the prison. He's he's just a overall real shady character, mm-hmm. I would say. For sure. Right? Yeah. So on the day that Charles is acquitted, um, they're going to have dinner, celebrate or whatever. So Mrs. Pross goes out with Jerry as her guardian um, to get some groceries. She's going to get some wine and bread and, you know, whatever. And so they're walking along and they're in a wine shop and getting some wine and lo and behold she looks up and there in front of her is surprise number 10 her long lost brother solomon what there is solomon right there and so she starts talking to him and he is like super sketchy he's like whoa whoa, whoa, let's go outside like he doesn't want other people to hear them talking together Mm -hmm. um he doesn't want anyone to know that he's an englishman because he's presenting himself as being french So they go outside and she's talking to him like, I can't believe that you haven't contacted me in all these years. Like, I can't believe it's you right here, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And Jerry, um, good old Jerry, good (laughs) old where his character really starts to rise up in my mind. But um, he's like, is your name Solomon John or John Solomon? And everybody's kind of like, what? (laughs) Like, what is going on? And he was like, because I remember seeing you as a witness in a trial. Remember, Jerry was there to be a messenger. Yep. He saw him in the trial and remembers that he said his name was John Barsad. So what? this spy who's like been moving and grooving as part of the story, we found out the entire time he is Mrs. Pross's brother, Solomon. Yep. Whoa insane yeah and it's so funny because he's just mentioned very much in passing oh yeah a couple of times mostly in the context of being the only one for lucy um or you know my long lost brother solomon whatever Mm -hmm. and then come to find out at the end this spy that we've seen throughout the story is actually solomon yeah yeah crazy 
So apparently, uh, critics would get onto Dickens because of all these coincidences. They're like, this would never happen in real life. Why is it it's such a coincidence that she just happens to run into him and then he happens to be the spy? But what Dickens would say is that the world is actually smaller than we think and mm-hmm. everything is connected in some way or another. And yeah. so to him, it was like, yeah, obviously her brother yeah. was there and he was the spy the whole time. And- also, I think back in that day, the world was smaller. You know, people didn't travel as far as they travel these days. So, you know, the number of people that you would interact with was much smaller than, than these days where people can just pick up and move across the whole world if they want very easily. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, um, so yeah, that was uh, pretty cool. But then also, um, if you don't, uh, let me think. I guess we can talk about Roger Cly either here or with the next one. What do you want to do? Let's do it here. Okay. So then um, they go on um, and they end up in this bigger conversation with a few more characters. Um, but essentially, um, Barsad or Solomon gets accused of still being a spy with Roger Cly, who also was a witness at that first trial. Mm-hmm. And he says, no, 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 no. Roger Clyde died back in England. We had a funeral for him. Like, no big deal. And then Jerry Cruncher is like, whoa, 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 whoa. Excuse me. Yes, Roger Clyde did have a funeral. And yes, they buried a coffin. But when I went and dug it up, (laughs) there was only paving stones in there. So he's not really dead. Like, don't you be trying to tell me he's dead. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, And so anyway, this, you know, uh, side gig he had that's probably not super ethical was uh, came back to be of benefit to the family because they're able to use that information um, to move forward. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Crazy. Okay. This last surprise, y'all. The 11th surprise. The... 11th of the surprises is insane it's a lot i don't know if i'm gonna be able to get through this without tearing up a little just giving a little bit of a warning that's okay that's okay (laughs) i am gonna make you read that quote again i hope you have that uh bookmarked still i have it bookmarked don't worry okay i have a few i have a few that are bookmarked that we'll get to okay cool all right y'all there's one more character we need to tell you about we haven't even mentioned him at all yet which is insane to me <laughs> that we got um, but the- also great because wow yeah wow 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 okay yeah. we get to save it for the end the mm-hmm. grand finale surprise number 11 is just the man himself sydney carton sydney carton is another one of the characters where your feelings about him change throughout the entire book yeah. They're very different from the first time you meet him to the last time you see him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and where to even begin? I would say with the trial, the, the first trial, right? Yeah. So when Charles Darnay is on trial, um, his, uh, the first time in England, his lawyer is Mr. Striver. Mm-hmm. And the lawyer's assistant, essentially, is Sidney Carton. Um, and the first way he is described is everyone in the courtroom is like looking at the witness box and they're like really interested in what's going on. Um, and this man is just looking at the ceiling, 
and he's bored and he's not paying attention. Yeah. Um, but uh, what happens is um, he is the one responsible for getting Charles acquitted mm-hmm. because he draws attention to the fact that Charles Darnay and himself, Sidney Carton, look extremely alike. Yeah. And so how could you know it was him for real? It could have been me. We look so similar. You Exactly. So like, could you know for sure that it was that man who was like passing these communications or whatever, doing this shady spy business? How do you know it was him? Like, if I look exactly like him, like, could you be sure? Yeah. Yeah. No. So he got acquitted. Mm -hmm. But there's also this whole thing that happens right after the trial where he takes Darnay to dinner and they drink and stuff. And Sydney like makes it a point to make sure Charles knows that he doesn't like him. Like Sydney doesn't like him. Like I didn't do that because I like you. I like just did it. I don't even know why I did it. Um, but yeah, I don't even like you. Yeah. Essentially is what he says. And he's like, and... no, go ahead. I was just going to say our first like introduction of him. He's a drunk. He's not paying attention. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like Charles. They call him a jackal. That is like his mm-hmm. nickname, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, he hasn't, he doesn't have, like, the social skills to actually make it, like, make himself be successful as a lawyer, so he just works with Mr. Striver, and Mr. Striver has the social skills and, like, the politician-y type um, attitude, but he doesn't have the skill as a lawyer to come up with all the points and, like, build the cases, Mm -hmm. Um, so they kind of work together, and Sydney builds the cases, and then Striver presents them. Um, and deals with like the people-y aspect of it but the whole time Sydney is just portrayed as a drunk um he doesn't care about anything he's just like not a good person um and that's just how he's portrayed in the beginning yeah and then we find out as like everyone's getting to hang out with Lucy everybody loves Lucy everybody loves Lucy literally everyone I think Striver does Striver likes mm-hmm. her. Um, D- Charles obviously likes her. Mm-hmm. Carton likes her. And so yeah. they're all kind of vying for her attention for a little bit. And, mm-hmm. but when Sydney realizes that she wants to be with Charles, this is the person that she loves, that's who she's going to mm-hmm. be with. This is what he says. So, um, Sydney Carton goes to Lucy. And he tells her essentially that he loves her, um, but he doesn't expect anything from her. He knows that he's not good enough for her, but he says, this is direct quote, y'all. I wish you to know that you have been the last dream of my soul. Um, In my degradation, I have not been so degraded, but that the sight of you with your father and of this home made such a home by you has stirred old shadows that I thought had died out of me. Um, so he's just telling her, like, I have never wanted to be a good person. I've never cared about being a good person, but you like stir that up in me. Like you make me wish I could be a better person so that I could be good enough for you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. He goes on to say, um, let's see, uh, it is useless to say it. I know, but it rises out of my soul. For you and for any dear to you, 
I would do anything. If my career were of that better kind, that there was any opportunity or capacity of sacrifice in it, I would embrace any sacrifice for you and for those dear to you. And then he goes on to say, um, uh, think now and then that there is a man who would give his life to keep a life you love beside you. So he's not just saying like, I love you and you need to be with me um, or anything like that. He's saying, I love you so much that I would do anything for anybody that you loved. Um, and if, if there was ever anything he could do to save someone, even if it was another man uh, who wanted to be with Lucy, he would do anything he could for that just because he knows that it would make her happy. And so this man who we know is just a drunk and doesn't care about anything, has this most pure love for Lucy. Yeah. And so after her wedding with Darnay, he even goes to Darnay. He apologizes for the whole episode where he told them that he didn't like him. Um, and he asks for the privilege um, to be a guest in their home um, to just occasionally be able to come over. And he maybe only like six times a year but he comes and he gets to spend time with the family. He gets to know her kids. Um, and, and it's just this like really pure form of, I love you very much. I'm not going to interfere with what makes you happy, but I just want to come be a small part of it sometimes. Yeah. I know my heart. It is insane because especially <laughs> like when you first hear a uh, striver talking about Lucy, it is so shallow. It is so mm -hmm. like, Oh, she's pretty. I love her. I think I can marry her. Like, but it, and it's not about her. She would be lucky to have me such a successful person yeah. and such, you know, and when she turns him down, um, he is immediately like, Oh, I didn't even want you. Yeah. Yeah. So it was just like, Oh, he thinks he needs to get married because he's like such a catch and she's there. She'd be so lucky and happy to have me. And so you see that kind of love. And then you see Charles who, is an amazing like person for Lucy. She loves him back and they like build mm -hmm. this family. And so that's also very real and true love. But then you have a carton kind of love, which is more sacrificial. Like I love you, even if you don't love me back. And even if mm -hmm. you marry someone else, I am going to love that person too, because you mm -hmm. love him. And I'm going to do whatever I can to be a part of your life and to take care of your family, even if I'm not the person you love. And so it's just right. like, Oh, ah, right. So then we find out that, um, that when Charles is acquitted in France and then rearrested that same day, Sidney Carton has also come to Paris. Yeah. And he's also there and he's been in contact with Mr. Laurie there. Um, and so we find out that he's come. And it was in chapter that I remembered. I remembered. It was this chapter. It's like mm -hmm. five chapters from the end, six chapters from the end. And I suddenly mm -hmm. like my eyes grew wide and I was like, I remember the ending now. Right. Right. Anyway. Um, so a couple of things happen um, along the same line of loving Lucy when Darnay is convicted and they're going to sentence him to die the next day, she essentially just like passes out. 
she faints. Yeah. Um, and they take her home and, um, he wants to speak while he's there. Um, and he just asks if he can kiss her, you know, like on the cheek or whatever. And he bends down and the daughter hears him talking to her. Um, and she doesn't hear everything. Um, but it said, um, the child told them afterwards and told her grandchildren when she was a handsome old lady. So she survives obviously, but, um, that she heard him say a life you love. Um, so he is in Paris and apparently has something in the workings to try to save the life that she loves, even though Lucy doesn't love him back. Yeah. Yeah. And her husband was just sentenced to death, basically. Right. And so apparently he's going to try to save him, but how's he going to do that? How, how's he going to do that? Well, Well. (laughs) well (laughs) i will first say that um when mrs pross and jerry are out um grocery shopping that's when um charles is arrested the second time so they have no idea that that's going on they think that everything is still Mm hunky-dory um but sydney carton shows up in that conversation with john barsad um and because they now know all of this information about him being a spy in england and and all of this stuff, Sydney is going to use him to get what he wants. Um, and he's going to threaten to denounce him to the Defarges. Um, and we already know that Barsad is on their list anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so he knows that that's very dangerous. But Sydney threatens to denounce him um, unless he helps him with this plot to save Charles. Yeah. And John Barsad is like, no, 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 no. There's nothing more dangerous than trying to have trying to help a prisoner escape no one can escape um so if you're giving me a choice between being denounced and trying to help someone escape like i'll just take my chances with being denounced you know Mm -hmm. um and sydney's like i didn't say anything about escape like you know just whatever and so they have this kind of secret meeting where they they come up with this plan Mm -hmm. um he says all i need is access to him like i'm you know i just need you to be able to get me to him and barsad is a turnkey at the prison so that's very convenient Mm -hmm. um and so you know after the trial he says i just want to be able to have access yeah um and so then sydney's kind of wandering the streets and he's just thinking about his life and how he hasn't really done anything with his whole life um he visits an apothecary and gets some chemicals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and then he waits and he goes to charles uh trial and finds out that he gets convicted. Um, and then what happens? Well, then he gets some some help from his friend, Barsad. Mm-hmm. He gets into the prison, La Force, where, uh, where Charles is. Mm-hmm. Starts, starts chatting him up and uh, kind of tricks him into yeah. switching clothes with him. And right slips him some of the some of the stuff he got secret stuff yeah he uses those chemicals to knock him out Mm -hmm. um and then you know they have switched clothes and he takes the i guess a ribbon from charles's hair and ties his hair up neatly and then you know rustles up uh charles's hair and knocks him out yep and then he calls in barsad and barsad uh takes Charles out of the prison 
and says, oh, he fainted from the shock of having his last visit with Evermond. Mm-hmm. Um, and so essentially anyone from the prison sees this gentleman go in to visit Charles and they see the same gentleman leave because remember, they look incredibly alike. Yep. So now Carton is dressed as Charles and locked in Charles' cell and Charles is dressed like Carton and being carried out of the prison by John Burson. Meanwhile, Carton has made all of the arrangements for Lucy, the doctor, and um, Mr. Lorry and Carton to leave the city. He's left his papers that allow him to leave France with Mr. Lorry. Um, and so essentially they're going to slip Charles out of France um, with Sidney Carton's papers and he's going to uh, take his place at the guillotine. Yeah. So, so he's literally sacrificing his life so that Lucy can be happy with another person. Oh, I know. I know. And then, so, you know, he's in his cell alone. And then all the prisoners, there's 52 prisoners who are going to be killed that day. And they're all coming back together. Remember, Charles was in prison for a year. Yeah. Um, so there's a prisoner, a young seamstress, uh, who recognizes him and starts talking to him. And Sydney kind of panics because he's like, I don't know this person. Yeah. Um, so he tries to go along with it. But ultimately, this young seamstress realizes that he's not Charles. And she says, you're dying for him. And he said, yes, for and for his wife and kids. And they have the sweetest, like, little bit of time. He comforts her. Oh, they hold hands, like, in line. As they travel, yeah, to go. Going to the guillotine. Whew. I know. Tears. So then um, it kind of gives this, like, whole look ahead into the future thing at the end when he's about to die, if he was prophetic and he could see the future. Um, and it just says that uh, Barsad, Roger Cly, Defarge, The Vengeance, um, all these people who've been included in this plot are also going to die by the guillotine um, before she is retired mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as a way of execution. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um he is the most peaceful person the look on his face is the most peaceful of any of the people who die by the guillotine um and he says it is a far far better thing that i do than i have ever done it is a far far better rest that i go to than i have ever known tears y'all i know i know and it also reveals oh you can go ahead and say that i was just gonna say lucy and charles have another kid and name him after sydney and then he has a kid and names him after sydney and takes him to la forest and tells his story Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so again it's kind of like a resurrection of like Carton's character like we said he started out Mm -hmm. being this drunk good-for-nothing jackal who didn't care about anything and then through his love for Lucy was like a changed man and ended up sacrificing himself for her which gave him new life and her kids and their kids and oh okay 
Um, there's one little piece of the story we haven't talked about. Can we talk about Madame Defarge? Yes, yes. I was gonna. <laughs> I was gonna talk about this. So, Lucy, her dad, Charles, they all get out of town. Mr. Lori, but Miss Mrs. Pross and Jerry were gonna be a little bit later. They had some stuff. Yeah. And so they they didn't want the journey to be delayed by Mrs. Pross and Jerry being accompanying them. So they had this whole plan. They were going to get the family out first. And then Jerry and Mrs. Cross were going to come a little bit later without any luggage in a faster carriage. They were going to be able to catch up and pass them and make the arrangements for changing horses along the way. Cause they didn't want to waste any time. They knew if anything was found out, they were coming after them. They also had some intelligence that the Defarges were going to come and arrest Lucy um, and the daughter. They were going to take them both because of, her communicating with Charles in the prison. She went there every day. Mm -hmm. Um, They said she was signaling. So they were going to accuse her of like being some sort of spy or working against the revolution or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, So as I said uh, earlier, Madame Defarge goes to Lucy's house um, right before um, the prisoners are going to be killed. Mm -hmm. And uh, she finds only Mrs. Prost there. And she finds that everyone else has gone. Um, and, uh, Madame Defarge and Mrs. Pross get into a fight, Yep, a battle for their lives because, you know, whatever. Anyway, um, essentially Mrs. Pross grabs her around the waist. Um, and it's, I just picture her just like picking her up off the ground and like spinning her around in a circle. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, Defarge can't get to the knife that's in her waist belt because it's under her arm. Um, but she's got a gun in her bosom. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and she pulls it out and apparently the trigger goes off um and she actually kills herself on accident trying to kill mrs pross yeah and so mrs pross being the good caretaker that she is locks the door and leaves yep <laughs> oh it's amazing um yeah. but yeah this is what's so cool like the uh the difference between that like mrs defarge being so fueled by her hatred and her vengeance and just wanting this family to suffer that ended up being her own demise and Mm -hmm. like it said her husband and everyone she was working with is going to be killed by the guillotine meanwhile carton was motivated by love true love and out of his death brought life for lucy and her Mm -hmm. family and um so yeah love is so much stronger than hate not only for carton but also mrs pross she was fighting for her love for lucy and her family yeah and she sacrificed her hearing she actually went deaf from the gunshot and so and she's not thinking about escaping at that time all she's thinking about is that lucy needs more time to Mm -hmm. get away Mm -hmm. so she's just thinking if i can delay her finding out that they're leaving they're gonna have more time and they're gonna escape so she doesn't care if she dies she doesn't care like what happens she just wants to make sure lucy has time to escape yeah i know i know so the sacrifices of pross and carton thanks to the love that they had that led lucy to have a successful life with her family yeah so overall it's a love story yeah basically Mm. That that's Tale of Two Cities, y'all. Oh my god. That gosh. is the whole thing. 
Um, it probably didn't go chronologically through the book, so you'll still have to figure it out if you read it, but I think we hit on most of the important points. I think so. I think so. Um, did you have anything, uh, that you think I missed that should have been on the list? Any other surprises? I don't think so. I think that's really all of them. And some of them kind of tied to each other or tied to like little tiny surprises inside, but yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, did you have any other quotes that you wanted to mention or any other things to say? Um, I don't think so. I think we hit all the ones that I was. They were mostly the ones with Carton and Lucy mm -hmm. um, and him just telling her, like, I just have this pure love for you. And um, yep. Cool. Well, I have some funny quotes that I, I took note of. Oh, very good. Um, so first of all, this is mentioned several times. I don't know what it means, but coughed a grain of cough. <laughs> what does that mean? She coughed a grain of cough. I think it's like you just go <coughs> instead of like actually having like a cough. It's just like one tiny like grain, you know, of like cough. a grain of sand instead of like a handful. It wasn't like <coughs> it was like, <coughs> yeah, I guess like I guess. a signal. <laughs> Well, in another instance, he said she also bestowed a British cough on Madame Defoe. Oh, what is the difference between a British cough and a regular cough? I don't know. Could you tell <laughs> in, in your audiobook was he doing the different accents? Yeah, but he was. I don't think he coughed. He wasn't coughing in British. No. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Um, another uh, interesting thing, um, they reference Cinderella, which blows my mind to think that Cinderella, the original Cinderella story came out before Tale of Two Cities. Where was that? Oh, I don't know. I didn't. Oh, it's fine. But it says, the woman and girl who formed the staff of domestics regarded her as quite a sorceress or Cinderella's godmother who would send out for oh. a fowl, a rabbit, a vegetable, or two from the garden and change them into anything she pleased. About Mrs. Pross. Interesting. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. So that was cool. Okay. Another one. This is uh, the Marquis. Um, he says, uh, light Monsieur, my nephew, to his chamber there and burn Monsieur, my nephew, in his bed, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He doesn't like Charles. Obviously, he had this whole plot to get him arrested in England. Um, and hopefully, and, and also, uh, I should note, I don't know if we mentioned it before, that trial, he wasn't going to go to prison. Um, he was going to be drawn and quartered. Yeah. If he was found guilty of being a traitor. So mm -hmm. um, his uncle tried to get him die dead in a very bad, bad manner. Yeah, yeah, so. for sure. Um, okay, so at one point, I don't know who he's talking to. Um, but they say, what may be your meaning, Mr. Laurie? Like, what, what do you mean? And he says, my meaning is, of course, friendly and appreciative and that <laughs> it does you the greatest credit. And in short, my meaning is everything you could desire. <laughs> that made me laugh. So hard. Okay. And the last one, this is Mrs. Pross talking to Madame Defarge. If those eyes of yours were bed winches and I was an English four-poster, they shouldn't lose a splinter of me. No, you wicked foreign woman, I am your match. Yes. Oh, my gosh. This is something I forgot to talk about when we were talking about this because Madame Defarge speaks French. Mrs. Pross oh, yeah. only speaks 
English. Oh, so yeah. they're having this like conversation, this like menacing conversation where they can't even understand each other. So Madame Defarge will say something like really mean and she'll be like, you know, and then Mrs. Pross says like a good comeback to it. But she doesn't know that because she's just like, oh, like, you know, <laughs> you think you're going to come in here and kill Lucy. Well, I don't think so. But they're just like not understanding each other. And it's amazing. Oh, yeah. 100 percent. 100 percent. Anyway, those are all the quotes I had. But like I said, hilarious. There are these little yeah. tidbits in there that are so funny. amidst this mm-hmm. like crazy, sad, serious story. Yeah. So. Mm. Mm, but what a good story oh yes so good i'm so glad that you uh you mentioned it so yes yeah so if anybody cool. wants to come on the podcast you want to do a book club let me know what book to read i'll prep for it we can discuss things it would be awesome mm-hmm. so i guess that's it anything else you want cool. to say I don't think so. Thanks for letting me come on your podcast. This was really fun. Yes, it was so fun. Just like the old days. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just like the old days. (laughs) Thanks for joining me for 11Zs. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review, subscribe, tune in each Thursday, and tell your friends. You can connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at KDSubcreations, and check out my blog and other free content at the link in the description. Now go where you must go and hope.